Thanks for tuning in to the Win With Vin podcast. And now, here's your host, Vinny Spiles. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the Win With Vin podcast. I'm Vinny Spottleson, candidate for the Assembly in District 21, and I'm really happy to be joined here today uh, by Stretch Sanders. Uh, Stretch, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, yes, I can. Thank you guys for having me. All power to the people. My name is Stretch Sanders. I am a 21-year-old activist and organizer, originally from Chicago, Illinois, and I'm an advocate for the Black Lives Matter movement a member of the Black Panther Party Cubs, and the founder and chairman of All Shades United. All right, thank you so much for joining us. And I do want to start by talking about uh, Black Lives Matter movement. And first, I just need to put a little disclaimer out here, because I didn't invite Stretch to be on here as an official spokesperson to speak for all the movement. I just want him to speak for himself and his opinions on the movement. And, you know, I just, I think we need to deconstruct a little bit how social movements are viewed on the left, because... Uh, the mainstream media and a lot of local media always try to take the statements of one participant in the movement and use that to speak for the entire movement or as the official statement of the movement. Uh, you know, that you're the spokesperson for Black Lives Matter. And I think during Occupy Wall Street, we saw this all the time where you would have one individual say something for Occupy Wall Street and then a media outlet or elected officials or people would take that to be representative of the entire movement. So that is not at all uh, what this is meant to be today. This, I just wanted to get Stretch's kind of firsthand experience, perspective on the movement itself. Um, and so here we go. Have, how, you know, when, you, when you've actually been out organizing for, for Black Lives Matter or been a part of events, have you actually seen this treatment from the media where folks have been asking you to speak or, expect, or taking your statements and, and use it to speak for all people or, or ask you, know, you to be the representative of all black people about this certain issue or something like that? Um, yes. Um, just to clarify, thank you for clarifying it earlier, but just to get a little more detail with the clarification, Black Lives Matter is a chapter organization as well as a movement. So a lot of times people, when they see Black Lives Matter, they don't realize that it's an actual organization with chapters in each different um, state. Mm -hmm. And when they have me speak or different places on behalf of the movement, I try not to be billed as a Black Lives Matter activist because that makes it look like I'm representing the organization. So the movement, which was started just with a simple hashtag, that sparked a national movement, but that also birthed into the organization. So I do try to tell people, you know, when I do speak, um, the movement is a is a pie. I'm a piece of the pie. So it's not like I'm speaking for the whole organization or the whole movement, but I'm just speaking on my behalf of what I experience. And going places, I do try to clarify that I'm a member of the organization. I mean, not the organization. I'm a member of the movement, but not the organization. Mm -hmm. But I support the organization. Las Vegas does not have an official chapter, so that's another confusion is that in other cities, when it's Black Lives Matter protesters, those are members of the organization mm. leading the the movements with the people that's just supporting, following. Vegas doesn't have that, have that um, chapter in Las Vegas. So when I speak, it's just because I'm part of the movement. So I do experience that when I go out and I try to just clear it up that I'm I'm part of the movement, but not the organization. And I can't speak for the whole movement. Yeah, so if we saw an action in, you know, like maybe back from the place where you used to live, Chicago, you know, the, that disruption got a lot of uh, media attention when they went to the Trump rally. You think that could actually be a chapter that's getting together and officially kind of organizing an action? Not saying that exact example, but that could be how it works in other places. Exactly. Well, okay. I do know when it comes to the, the Trump situation, there, there were members of the Chicago Black Lives Matter um, organization that was there, 
But the rest of those people were just people that's fed up, that want to be part of the movement. Yeah. Everybody doesn't want to join an organization. Some people are already part of organizations which are fighting for black liberation and black freedom. So they would just rather just show their support and be allies. So those individuals would be part of the movement, but not the organization. I do know what the Trump rally it was half and half. Some yeah. people was was allies and some people was part of the actual organization and that makes the movement. Yeah, and the media that came out of that again tried to frame it this entire this is all Black Lives Matter, this is official. And how how do you think we can get beyond that with our media, with journalists, with uh, elected officials? So that folks can understand the more decentralized nature of these movements and that it really is a collection of grassroots people rather than one leader at the top. Uh, it, w- it would definitely start with interviewing people because as soon as somebody goes or that's black speaks up against something, they're automatically billed as a Black Lives Matter protester. And that's, that's sometimes as far from the truth. And when you do that, you not only do you put them in a box, they might not even be part of the organization so it's disrespectful for somebody that's in the organization um to have them it's just like if you're part of something then you see somebody getting that title they didn't earn that they're not part of that group so they shouldn't be billed as that i think the best thing is to interview them to see what's their stance and who they are who they're part of but the media is never going to portray something that's they're not really in our favor all the time so when they do things like that we're not really surprised because they're going to put it out how they want to put it out you know mm-hmm. so when it comes to police brutality on on these victims the media is not really our friend in some situ- situations they're going to make it seem like we're being um you know violent or trying to start riots or that we're starting disruptions or so we don't expect them to really do anything that they don't do you know which is just Bill us as Black Lives Matter protests. Even if we didn't say anything about Black Lives Matter, that's what they're going to call you. Right. You know, if you're yeah, black, yeah. You know, being an activist or grassroots. So I just think it's just a clarification as far as really clarifying that with the movement, it's an actual organization, one. And then two, everybody that is an activist, you know, I mean, of course, we don't mind being called Black Lives Matter because we're black, you know. Yeah. So it's not, it's offensive or anything like that. But I try to stay clear of that because it is an organization. So I don't want them to think that. I'm trying to be an imposter or I'm claiming to be in something I'm not. You know, exactly, so. yeah. Well, let's get into the meat of you know what really has sprung the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, that's obviously police violence, which you touched on, and treatment of uh, uh, the black community, but a lot of minority communities, a lot of all kinds of people by uh, police and other authorities. Have you ever had negative experiences with the police in your life? Oh, all the time. Uh, growing up in Chicago, the police are way more aggressive than they are in Vegas. And that's mainly because Chicago's racism is more vivid in a sense because it's more segregated. Mm -hmm. Vegas is segregated by class. So whether you are Hispanic, Native American, white, black, whatever, if you are uh, low class, you're in one neighborhood and Mm -hmm. it goes up. Chicago is rich blacks with rich blacks, poor blacks with poor blacks. Uh, You know, it's kind of set like that. So, you know, the segregation is more real, so you know the racism is more real. It's like it's the reason why they're not mingling. So when those police come in our neighborhoods, it's vivid. You know that they live up north, uptown, and not on the south side. So they treat you like that. Mm. So um, in Chicago, the schools are protected. The security guards are police officers. So most of them are, you could tell, have some racism in them, and the way they speak to you, I've got pushed, shoved, you know, get your um, dumb made a class, just different things like that. And then uh, growing up, my father's a police officer, Chicago mm-hmm. Police Department. So just talking to him and his stories as far as what he's witnessed, being a black police officer in the forest, I know it's, it's evident 
coming to Vegas is it, it was new experience because I didn't think Vegas was racist, but you know, as far as being on the West Coast. But when I started hearing that Vegas used to be called the Mississippi of the West, it started making sense. And then as I started being an advocate for stopping police terrorism, I started to see for myself the way we get treated. And uh, if, if, if it's two cars speed and the car next to me happens to be white, I get pulled over, not and they go free. Little things like that have yeah. been coming to me recently. It's like, okay, it is uh, police brutality here and it is racism here. On black and brown bodies. Yeah, and have you? Do you have any specific anecdote, a- anecdote, or a short story here in Las Vegas that either you yourself or somebody you know experienced that you want to share? Oh yeah, uh, January not January, excuse me, December thirty first, twenty fifteen. Keith Childress, who was black, he was gunned down twenty times uh, by the police department. Uh, I want to say he got shot twenty times. Shot twenty times. They shot at him twenty times. I think eight went in him. Uh-huh. So they shot at him twenty times, and he was shot because they thought that his cell phone was a gun and he pulled it out to record them because they rolled up on him you know aggressively so he wanted to record it they were screaming drop your gun drop your gun he didn't drop it because it wasn't a gun and they shot him and they killed him so that happened in December and currently we're still fighting to get uh, justice for him and his family because we feel like he was unjustly uh, killed mainly because they 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 heard that he was an ex-felon, so they're more aggressive when they know you had a criminal background, which mm-hmm. that's still not fair. If you served your, set, your um, debt to society, it shouldn't matter what your past did. And because he was a person of a color, they were hard on him. And I can't see how you could think a cell phone is a gun. It was 3 in the afternoon. It was super bright outside. Vegas is super sunny. I don't know what cell phone looks like a gun. Mm-hmm. And they shot at him 20 times. And I feel even if you thought it was a gun... Once he hit the ground, it kept shooting him. So that's like overkill. You yeah. Know? So that's something that is really dear to me because we feel like he was shot like that because he was black. If he was white, I personally feel he would have not been shot that many times. Or they probably would have approached him differently. Yeah. Or he probably wouldn't have been as a threat. Well, and I, I, I agree with you because I've had a really weird experience with the cops where they pulled the gun on me but uh, never got shot at. And we were filming a zombie movie in college. Um, and we were at the Sandpoint Stadium right you know, right by the stadium, and it was one of those scenes where we had like 12 or 15 people and all kinds of makeup. So we're talking blood and gore. And the cops showed up because we weren't really supposed to be filming there, and they had had a problem with copper thieves. But instead of showing up and being like, what are you guys doing here? And maybe because they saw the zombie blood, they actually came out gun-pointed. Put your hands on the car. Don't turn around. Don't move. Uh, and, <laughs> you know... Uh, obviously I wasn't shot at or anything, but I did as soon as, you know, they said, don't put your hand, don't turn it. I turned away. I turned towards them. I was like, what are you guys doing? You know, and had a conversation, you know, no, no gunshots or anything. So, uh, even with that negative experience, I still never felt like me or anybody I know's life is in danger. And I think it's a good idea, like you're saying, to film cops when they're doing stuff. Um, I, you know, we'll get into body cameras in a moment. I think that's a good idea. And cops should expect when they show up places in the year 2016, everybody's going to pull out their cell phones and start Mm -hmm. taking pictures and videos. So it is, I don't think it's defensible, even if, you know, you've seen the videos from the cops' perspectives where uh, people are pulling out their cell phones. You can't tell if it's a cell phone or a gun. I, 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 I genuinely... I just doubt that that looks the same. I mean, guns are heavy, they're big, they get pulled out of different areas. It's totally different than an iPhone that you're, you know, going to be filming with. Um, so what do you think causes this police brutality? Why do, why is it worse towards people of color, especially the black community? Uh, it's always because they see, people see, it's just, it's just the way the world is, society's set up, black as a threat. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know why. If you look at history, you know, who has been known to be the violent one? It's never been the black man. But we are, we're, we're so targeted, and it's because they see you as a threat. So, if, like in your situation, if, you, if, if it was a bunch of black kids, they would have definitely got shot when oh, they yeah. turned around. Yeah. They would have got immediately gunned down. I don't know why, but it's just the way, if you go all the way back to slavery, the way we were conditioned is that instead of being taught that black and white is nice, we're taught that white is nice. You know, mm-hmm. whites, white for wedding, black for funerals. You know, so we're trained to think that white is more of the soft side. You know, people move in neighborhoods, they look for the white person jogging. They don't say black person jogging. You say black person jogging, you think they're running from somebody. Mm-hmm. So it's just the way society has brainwashed not just blacks or whites, but everybody mm-hmm. to think that black is more of a threat so when they're called and they're describing five foot seven black male they automatically get in defense mode their life is it's like their life is all making danger because they're black i don't know what we could really do to change that i think that maybe hire cops that are not racist or have some type of psychiatric training or i really don't really have that antidote yet but i feel that's just the way it is is that black black period yeah. Even if it's a child. Tamir Rice was 12 years old and they gunned him down. So it's not like it's a certain age or a certain height. If you're black, you're a threat. And that's just how it works. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the solutions that's always floated out is body cameras. What do you think about body cameras? I think body cameras are, are actually beneficial. I've heard, I'm not really sure, but I heard that in Vegas, the newer cops that's, that joined the first, in the recent two years, are required to wear them. The veterans are not. Mm-hmm. And Chief Kildress's murders, the pigs that shot him down, they had on body cameras. But one officer said his body camera was off. It wasn't on at the time. So I feel even then, that's not really the answer because they could still say the battery died. I mean, cops do, what, 12 hours a day, most of them. Mm -hmm. I feel that they need to continue to let the civilians film because once they're trying to take that right. And once they take that right... Body cameras on officers are going to still be irrelevant because they could still say in Chief in Keith's case it was off, or even the dash cams. Yeah, the dash cams they say it was off, or the the car wasn't pointed towards the victim, so you might hear but you don't see. I think the best thing is really to set maybe street cameras that might be a ben- beneficial. But body cameras to me is I was I was glad to hear that they were doing it, but once I started seeing in, in Keith's case, it really didn't save his life. Interesting. You know, it really made matters worse because he tried to record him and they shot him because they thought it was a gun. And then they said, in their defense, their camera was off. So I just feel like, yeah. uh, you know, I don't really know if body cameras is a solution. I think the best thing is to maybe set up a city local camera, you know, where can patrol everything or to give the citizen more rights to record, you know, because now they have a law. You have to be 20 feet away to record the officer. I think it should just be weak. As long as we're not interfering, we should record all day long. Yeah. Know? And if you're getting arrested, you should be able to record unless you're being uh, detained. But if you're just sitting there and they're interviewing you, you should be able to record them. That's kind of starting to get illegal where you have, you can't, somebody else have to record you. But if you're by yourself, what do you do? Yeah. And if you do pull the camera out and they say, put it down, you get shot. So I don't know. I'm not really too much in favor of body cameras. I think we have to find another solution. Maybe where the body cameras can't die. Or that yeah. home just all day long, you know. Yeah. But the fact that they have the, f- the fact that the the camera's in the hand of the of the police, I don't like because they can still do what they want to do. Yeah. Well, and I, I support body cameras, but I see what you're saying about the need to have the citizenry filming too. I mean, it's the classic who watches the watchman, right? Mm-hmm. It's the public that we got to be on watch, and we got to have the rights to record, and to interview, and and uh, to film, and to, to use that in court if it if it gets there. 
Um, you know, my cousin is a uh, police officer. He lives in Spokane, but he's a police officer in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And when he f- they first started the body cam- cameras, he was really against it because he thought, oh, this is another thing they're going to use to come after us. You know, the cops are always under assault. And what he's actually found now that he's been using it for a couple years is that it really helps him in court because, you know, cops are dealing with a lot of crazy people, a lot of violent people all the time. And uh, people who change their stories when they actually get into court about what happens. And he's been exonerated and he's actually been found to be performing his duty well because he could bring the body camera evidence to the courtroom. So I, I think uh, I think that, you know, we should be rolling out body cameras and have, like you're saying, longer battery lives and, and other ways to, to make sure the technology actually works. But absolutely, the citizens have to have... It's, de- it's definitely an excellent idea. I, yeah. I do believe ever since we've been able to have cameras, that has opened a whole another door. But if you if you're familiar with the Rodney King case from the nineties, that was recorded on camera and they got off. So sometimes, yeah. you know, uh, cameras really don't make a difference. Uh, Eric Gardner was killed on camera. So a lot of times I do think that the, the body camera is a good idea, but we still have to think of other solutions to go along with the body camera. It still can work in favor. Uh, if the officer is being lied against, he could prove his innocence with the camera. But sometimes when it comes to the victim, they can't. So I think body cameras might be more in favor with the officer to prove mm-hmm. that they're doing the right thing, but sometimes it still could work work against the victim. Yeah. So I think the best way is maybe get more detail with the body cameras, exactly, wh- you know, who's in control of them or who's with them or who's who's watching the Watchmen in a sense. Yeah. You know, who's watching the body cameras? Who has control of the body cameras? Maybe the body cameras should be controlled by the DA's office and not the police department. You know, so I think it's a good idea, but we need to work on it a little more to make sure it's effective for everybody. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, this touches on another, you know, I I think a big part of the Black Lives Matter movement, but another reason for those sort of, you know, like the Rodney King incident or when you do have video evidence and then you still uh, have a bad outcome in court. And I think that is the conversation about race and racism that really the Black Lives Matter movement has re-elevated in our country. And it seems to me one of the best parts of that the movement has been that it's forced this conversation again. You know, we were we were in this kind of period around Obama, uh, where we weren't really having this conversation as much. I felt like, and and now it's kind of bubbled up again, and it, you know, it's made people realize that racism is still really strong in this country, still very pervasive. Do you agree? I totally agree. I think that we have got sidetracked because when you see, when you hear the name like Martin Luther King, and then you see sixty years from now. Obama becomes president. Whenever you see a black face in a high place, you assume that we're progressing. And you're right. Around the Obama time, when he first got in, it made people feel like, wow, we finally overcome. Which I even thought that. I was, young, I was younger, but yeah. I even believed that. Wow, racism is over with. But as you start seeing little things come out and then the Trayvon Martin situation, that's what really cracked the, the case back in 2012. Where it was like, wow, this man you know, really was told by police to leave him alone and he still got off. So it, it shows that, wow, maybe it's not over with. And then as different cases start coming out and then social media is very effective, cameras, sharing videos, it opened a whole, a whole new light and perspective mm-hmm. where it forced people to talk about it. So now, even if you don't want to talk about it, if you get on Facebook, you're going to see the video, you're going to see a hashtag. So social media played a big role, really. I give my, um, my hat off to social media because it's really exposed. For social media, was really popular. You could just not talk about it, but... And, and if you don't watch Fox or CNN, you won't see it. Yeah. But now, if you want to have a Facebook or a Twitter or Instagram, you're going to see it. You're going to see, yeah. So it forces you're going to talk about it regardless. You, you have no choice. So I think racism is more than alive. 
and it's really never it really never ended. It just yeah. it paints a picture to you because you you see that we have progressed from segregation and things like that. We got a black president, but when it's all said and done at a local level, mm-hmm. racism is still alive. And well, it's, and, and, and I want to get into that, that too because how do you think racism has changed from our parents, our grandparents' generation to today? What's the difference? Well, one, we have segregation is over with. We mm-hmm. have the Voters Act and the uh, vote, the Civil Rights Act, which made uh, segregation illegal and uh, integration is legal in schools now. So we, we, we have little things like that. We have the right to vote. But then if you still look at mass incarceration, which is there are more black and brown bodies in prison than any other race. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a black man sells drugs compared to a white man, the black man is more likely to get more time, even if it's a lesser drug like marijuana. Yeah. So little things like that. And then you start seeing, well, mass incarceration is like the new slavery, where it's like, they're putting all this money into prisons, which if you put the money into school systems or programs, you won't need to have prisons because they won't be going. They'd be educated, you know, what's going on. Yeah. But when you put people in situations like poverty where they're forced to rob, forced to kill, the whole goal is to lock them back up. Then when they get out of jail, you have where they have to check if they're a felon or not, meaning nobody's going to hire a felon. Yeah. So what they're going to do, they're going to do the same thing and go back to jail. So that's another form of racism that we really don't really shed too much light. It's bigger than just the Black Lives Matter. It's Black Lives Matter. It's mass incarceration. It's still why there are more blacks in poverty besides any other race. Things like that that we don't really see, but we're starting to shine a light on. So that's 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 really the big biggest thing is that they're using little tactics like mass incarceration mm-hmm. to pretty much put us back in segregation. Because whenever you have millions of dollars invested into prison systems, that tell you something right there. Yeah. Instead of putting that money into programs, you know, when they're kids or building, they're closing in Chicago. They closed down fifty schools. Wow. So, if you shut down fifty schools and you live in a poverty area, what we call the hood, what do you think they're gonna do? They have no education. They can't get a job. There are no jobs hiring them. They're stereotyped because they're black. They're going to sell drugs. So it's all a. A cycle, you know. Most of the drugs they sell was planted. They don't have passports. Mm-hmm. The guns they have, they don't have ways to get to Russia. So the CIA and these other organizations are, I feel, are putting the guns and the drugs in the neighborhood so we could fall for the okie doke, go to prison, and be in jail for the rest of our lives. And that, that's study divided. Yeah. The more blacks off the street is, to me, that's the goal. It's, it's no war on drugs. It's, it's no war on gangs. It's the war on the black community. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, there is indisputable evidence that at, le- at the very least government looked the other way during a lot of the cocaine shipments uh, that, you know, caused the crack e- epidemic to really start in this country. And um, I, you know, and I, I think that in addition to the, uh, the racism, the structural racism, a couple of facts that just jumped to the top of my mind that are really uh, sort of implicate what you're talking about here. There are more black people in prison today than there were slaves in the mm-hmm. United States. I think that's, you know, it, it, unbelievable. And the other thing that I saw that in Colorado and Washington, where marijuana has been legal since 2012, mm-hmm. black people are still being har- arrested at a higher level than white people for marijuana in those mm-hmm. states. So uh, uh, this is very deep. And, and, you know, and also it's not just, you know, I think stereotypes are a huge problem for us and 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 archetypes and those sorts of categories that we try to shove people into. And it, that goes to, towards all races. And, and it's not just negative stereotypes like, oh, because you're Latino, you're undocumented. It's positive stereotypes too. Like I'm, you're tall, so I'm sure a lot of people are like, oh, you gotta be good at b- basketball, exactly. right? Or, uh, you know, um, uh, my wife is, is Japanese, so you know, there's a lot of Asian stereotypes that she's gonna be smart or something. Mm-hmm. And that can cause its own set of problems. Um, 
you know, and, and probably one of the biggest stereotypes, the biggest forms of racism that's grown in the last 15 years is racism and, and negative stereotypes, especially towards the Middle Eastern community. Like a uh, uh, podcast producer and, and guy who's done the, uh, a lot of the work on the campaign, Shahab, you know, he's Iranian and he's told me about stories in the airport and other, you know, situations. And so it's, it's really bad all over the place when people start to uh, take, you know, a category, a stereotype because somebody's a part of that race and apply it to mean for all people of that race mm-hmm. instead of just one or two. Um, and see, one thing with racism is that we never, it's like a wound. We never actually touched the wound. We, 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 we patched it up in different ways, but it's just like if you cut your arm really bad, you, if you ever notice, if you ever bump it, it opens up easily again. So you have to properly stitch that. A lot of the racism, the different spots of racism, we never really properly stitched. We patched it up with the Civil Rights Act. We patched it up with the Voter Registration Act. We patched it up with, with the black president. But as soon as something like the Black Lives Matter situations with Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, it opened up easily and it's worse. And that's because racism has never really been properly dealt with. We don't really teach slavery effectively in the schools. We ignore the fact that our presidents who are on the dollar bills had slaves, little things like that. Yeah, you know, that so we're terrible like, slave owners, really it, horrible it, people. You know, yeah. we, if we if you look at the, the the different mascot names, or those are names of indigenous people and tribe leaders. We don't we don't look at that. That when you put somebody as a mascot, that's really degrading. You don't mm-hmm. have the Chicago Negroes or <laughs> the the Oakland Caucasians. So that tell you right there that yeah. racism is is hidden and it's subliminal. It could be images, it could be music. It's, it's mascot. So the best thing to do is really start cracking the whip on everything. Let's start reversing. If, if, if they're slave owners on dollar bills, change them. You know, if they're mascots that offend a certain ethnicity, change it. If, if people of that uh, Muslims or Islam are getting uh, harassed or let's start cracking down on that. You know, let's start speaking up for each other and let's start uniting. But when you act like it's not there, that's when it gets worse. Yeah. And nobody wants to speak out and join the person that's that's Indian or, uh, or Nation of Islam or Muslim and say, I, I got you, you know, if they harass me, they got to kick, if they kick you out, they kick me out too. We don't come together like that. Or if somebody say Black Lives Matter, you're right, Black Lives Matter. No, we come behind them and say all lives matter. So we're really making it worse, you know, mm-hmm. instead of instead of joining. So I think once we start to really unite with each other, that's when it ends because you do what you see. You Once you see your counterparts getting involved, it's going to make you get involved. Yeah. But when you see your counterpart not speaking up, it makes you feel that, not, not bad to speak up because he ain't spoke up. So why should I speak up? Yeah. And I want to get into that, the kind of intersections that you're talking about in just a second. But a couple more questions on uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, well, and actually, just getting away from Black Lives Matter specifically for just a second. Earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that you're uh, affiliated with the Black Panther organization here. Can you just give our listeners a little taste of what the Black Panthers are, why that organization inspires you, what, um, uh, and what, what, what they're up to here in Vegas? Okay, so earlier I said that I'm a member of the, of the Black Panther Party Cubs, meaning we are the ideological Cubs of the Panthers. The Black Panther Party was from circa 1966, October 1966 to, I can't really say when the month, but 1982. So in my eyes, you have organizations that are going with the Panther brand, we are the Black Panther Party Cubs. We don't try to be the new. We don't try to be the new and improved. We just try to be the Cubs, which are trying to carry on the legacy of the Black Panther Party. The organization is a chapter organization. It's actually called the Prisoners of Conscience Committee slash Black Panther Party Cubs. It's a chapter organization which is led by Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. He is the son of Chairman Fred Hampton Sr., who was assassinated December 4th, 1969, 
by the CPD, the FBI, uh, doing the Pro program, which it was a program to take out all the black figures and leaders. He was assassinated, and his son was born two weeks later. And his son, you know, I mean, having a father that was, you know, powerful like that, you automatically going to grow up being just like him. So his son grew up. He was a political prisoner. He got unleashed, and he grew up to be just like his father, to walk in his father's footsteps and carry on the legacy of the Panthers. Instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, he just took what his father had laid and left behind, and he started the Cubs. So the Cubs position, we don't have an official chapter in Vegas, but we are a chapter organization, and the Cubs position is to pretty much just carry the legacy of the Panthers to serve the people. We believe in all power to all people, whether you are red, black, white, brown, or yellow. We believe in serving our communities. We believe in supporting the black agenda, but we do have allies, mm-hmm. just the same way the Black Panther Party did. So we don't try to be the, the Black Panther Party. We don't try to be the new Black Panther Party. We are just It's just like if you are trying to carry on your parents' legacy. Yeah. If they had a restaurant and they're both deceased, you want to make sure that restaurant still goes on for the next generation. So that's just the Cubs stand. It's just to keep the Panthers' legacy alive, to defend them, to clear their name, that they wasn't a terrorist organization, that weren't, they were not a gang. Mm-hmm. A lot of Panthers are deceased, so they can't speak for themselves. We are fortunate to have a lot of Panthers who are alive, mm-hmm. but most of them are elderly or most of my political prisoners. So the Cubs just try to just continue the legacy with the Panthers left behind and to just celebrate their works. Yeah, and we just lost a, um, a prominent Black uh, Black Panther, uh, uh, Tupac's mother. Now I'm forgetting her name. Afeni Shakur. Yeah, she just passed away recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so just kind of last question here on the Black Lives Matter movement. This is coming from the maybe more radical side. You know, what do you say to people who, who say the goals here in the movement don't go far enough? Um, you know, for example, Marissa Johnson, who is the one who famously disrupted Bernie Sanders' speech in Seattle, uh, she's now called for the abolition of the Seattle Police Department altogether. Um, you know, what? how do you respond to that, those sorts of thoughts, or what do you think about um, ideas like that? Well, Marissa Johnson, she is a comrade of mine. We don't personally know each other, but... We do know each other as far as social media is concerned. I can't speak on what she said as far as if she feels that it needs to be abolished in the Seattle Police Department, then that's her. I feel my stance with the movement is to not judge or to criticize or ridicule or not even give, it could be positive or negative, to not really give an open opinion about what they decide to do because everybody's doing what the best they know how, you know, mm-hmm. and everybody's going to do what they feel is effective in the movement. If that's how she feels, then that's how she feels. And yeah. I, su- I support her for her being her. I think that as far as her disrupting the Bernie Sanders speech, and there was another comrade that joined her, that was another situation. They did what they thought they had to do. When it comes to trying to be free and being and, and freeing people, it's not going to be cute. Sometimes you can't just say, no justice, no peace. People are going to say, okay. But if you come in, no justice, no peace, bust the dough in, get on stage, grab the mic, that's going to get way more people to wake up than no justice, no peace. Even being a minister, sometimes people expect me to be the soft-spoken. Sometimes I have to raise my voice a little loud. My intent is to never disrespect anybody or to offend anybody, but trying to be free, it's not going to get done in a cute manner. Mm-hmm. So if it, if it takes getting on stage, and Bernie was very respectful as far as giving them the platform, he wasn't arguing with them, and, and that's what we need. We need people to allow us to be heard. Because he did what he did, it, it rolled smoothly. You know, They was able to say what they wanted to say, and that was the end of it. So I think that different scenarios like that, you know, people might have their views, both positive and negative, but every activist or organizer is just doing the best that they know how, Yeah. you know, in today's time. Well, and I, and I lived in Seattle for six years, and I think that 
you know, I wasn't surprised at all that that happened because in Seattle, the conversation really is between liberals and radicals, right? And how do you push that organization? And, you know, I think on the national level, there's been this perception that Bernie Sanders is the most radical, the most progressive candidate. And I caucused for him. I supported him in the primary. But, um, you know, for Seattle, I think that he's still pretty conservative compared to a lot of the folks out there. And, and you know, uh, this goes towards a lot of things and not to get too far off topic, but Bernie Sanders never committed to ending the, the drone war and, you know, stopping robots from killing kids all over the Middle East. So it's not like, you know, he's the the only progressive or leftist champion with all the ideas. Um, and I think that some of us got caught up into that during the primary. But uh, I kind of want to move on and zoom out a bit from the Black Lives Matter movement and talk about those intersections, you know, between different movements and between different races. So can you tell us a little bit about All Shades United? What led to that? What led to that organization? Okay. All Shades United is an organization I founded back in 2014. It, it sparked two events. One event was when I was in high school, I was chased and pretty much almost, I want to say killed by three Hispanic brothers. And maybe a year later, one of my friends was, was stabbed by three Hispanics out just being outside his home. They came up on him, told him to leave. Words were kind of exchanged and they stabbed him. And as I started talking to a lot of Hispanic friends that I have, they started to reveal to me that it's a deep root of of like a division or some anger towards the black race from Hispanics. And even when it comes to talking to some of my um, black friends, it's a, it's the same deepness towards Hispanics. So I don't know why is that, you know, we, we both have it hard. We both are oppressed people. You think we'll be united, but it's a, it's a deep anger towards one another. So that kind of at the, my um, friend was um, almost killed. That kind of sparked me. Well, man, we need something to bridge that gap to, mm-hmm. It's nothing. I, I love organizations because uh, I'm part of the Cubs, and our organization is to focus on the Black agenda. I love organizations that are for each ethnicity. It's nothing wrong with having a group that's for each group to better that community. But we do need to have something that's also for unity. Just because you're focusing on your own community doesn't mean you're excluding anybody. But at the same time, it's good to have something where we all can come together. Once we all work on our own agendas, let's bring the agendas to the table and let's work with each other. So all shades united position is pretty much a group of all organizations who have united to just assist and work with each other, uh, work with the red man, the yellow man, the brown man, the white man, and the, the black man. Whatever campaign you have, if you're red and this for ending mascots, we're going to support you. Mm-hmm. If it's Black Lives Matter and I'm white, I'm going to support you. So it's all about us working together. My, 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 my vision is pretty much an organization which is the true melting pot, yeah. But not, not, not with this. Let's be colorblind or none of that. We, we want to be as, as, as colored as we can see each other, and let's start working with each other and bridging the gaps. Yeah. If we do that, and and people see us united, that might inspire other organizations, or other groups, or other people to not have. If it's a certain racism or a certain stereotype, that might help to to eliminate that. They see us working together, true brotherhood. So those two scenarios happened a couple years ago just really got me fed up. I was like, I need to start something to inspire people to let the brown man know that we're on your team. Mm-hmm. And so the brown man can know the black man is on his team. And yeah. You know, so just, just a coalition of unity. Well, and I, I think that's really important because, you know, you made a, a good point that is we should be celebrating that difference, right? Uh, I, a lot of times you hear people say, well, isn't it equality or aren't we all supposed to be colorblind or all supposed to be treated the same? And that's not what you're saying, right? You're mm-hmm. saying that we uh, uh, we should actually celebrate those differences, right? Yeah, I, 
I'm totally against the term colorblindness. I mentioned uh, to a to an individual that when I was on a panel, we had a I was representing to the black community, and we had a sweet old lady. She happened to be white. She stood up and she said that she tells her friends who are kind of not racist, but they're still stuck in. They're not progressing as they should. They're still stuck in the 1960 mentality. You mm-hmm. know, we're still colored in their eyes. And she told her friend that, you know, not to be like that, to just be colorblind. And she asked me how I felt about that. I told her that I'm totally against that, even though I see what they mean, you know, meaning I, I'm not I'm, I'm not racist. But when you say to somebody, when I see you, I don't see black. I don't see white. I don't see red. You're pretty much saying, you know, whatever they feel, the proudness they have, the pride they have. Whatever it takes to make them be who they are, you're, it's like you're ignoring that. So I think the best thing to say, when I see you, I see black. I see your struggle. I see your pain. And I love you for all of that. Not to say you don't see it because it's offensive, especially being black. In my eyes, having it harder, you know, the black holocaust to me was one of the worst of all time. So when you mm-hmm. say, when I see you don't see black, it's like you don't see slavery. You don't see Jim Crow. You don't see those things. You don't see Black Lives Matter. But if I get pulled over by... A cop who happens to be racist, he sees all of that. Yeah. So you saying you don't see it is totally irrelevant if yeah. people still see it. So the best thing is to start putting the message, well, I see you for who you are. Let's be proud of who we are. That's People People think that that's segregating. That's when we say Black Lives Matter. That's not segregating. It's getting people to shine the light to see what's going on in hopes to unite. But the more you keep acting like it doesn't exist, that's why we're still in the position we're in now. Yeah. Years, we just kept acting like we don't see it. And once again, that's not fully touching the wound you're just patching it up with color blindness mm-hmm. well uh you know actually kind of going off script here i have I, there's an interesting i always thought about the sort of white identity and and a big part of white privilege is this idea that you aren't actually forced to consciously think about your whiteness right mm-hmm. that uh that it's not a topic that comes up that if you're in a group of mixed friends uh oftentimes you know especially like out here growing out in the growing up in the suburbs where we are, are predominantly white and Asian area, you know, it's always the jokes that, to make fun of the black friend or the Mexican friend or somebody like that. And I think that one of the interesting things that causes some animosity is this this sort of lack of culture um, among white people. And I don't mean lack of culture, but they don't have a way and they, they're, there's a lot of folks that have a trouble expressing it or, or identifying with it because, you know, people are very proud of their heritage. And for me, it hasn't been so much of a problem because we grew up Italian. My name is Vinny, so it's Italian. And uh, my grandparents are really into it. My sister, you know, traveled over and studied there. We eat a lot of Italian food. So there's a lot of that cultural celebration. But I think for um, some white folks, there's this sense of there's no place for me to celebrate my own heritage, especially because it is such a, (laughs) a bad heritage, you know, like, um, you know, my grandparents on my mother's side are extremely racist people. They only, uh, my grandfather only, uh, God rest his soul, a great guy, but he only referred to black people using the N-word. And so I think a lot of um, white folks have trouble feeling pride about their ethnicity, if, mm-hmm. if, if that makes any sense. You know, in the same way that it's beaten down for a lot of people of color, it's weird how the celebration of that diversity and trying to celebrate these cultures I think has created a sort of a void for some white people that say, well, I don't know what, what, what do I have? Who am I? You know? And that, that, that's going to take some soul searching on their own. Yeah. But when you say, I don't see, when I see you, I don't see black. 
you're dismissing that their struggle. Mm-hmm. So if I say, when I see you, I don't see why you might not get offended because you still probably deal with that trying to identify who you are. Yeah. But when you black, there's no discussion that we don't know who we are because like I said, if I'm walking down the street at night with a hoodie on, once I get pulled over, it, it comes full circle who I am. Yeah, exactly. So it, I, I could see how it, people could view that, but that's for that person to decide on who they are. But when it comes to the black person, you know, they know who they are. It's, it's evident every day. So I understand, but, you know, you can always find good in anything. And even if you go back in the civil rights movement, you had white people who were in the defense of black people mm-hmm. and who, and even slavery. You had white people who risked their lives and was housed in slaves. So you can always find good. But a lot of white people seem to hold on to the Confederate flag. It's like you could find good. You know there were good people that... That, that, that was uh, unified with the blacks, but you want to hold on to the negative part. So you can yeah. find good in anything. Yeah. It's just a matter of people choosing to do so. Well, and that especially goes towards our founding fathers because people act like, oh, back then, you know, everybody was owned slaves or everybody was racist. And no, Benjamin Franklin was a very outspoken abolitionist. You know, it's I'm comfortable with him being on our $100 bill because he didn't own any slaves and he didn't think it was good. You know, some of these other guys... We have their own writings, or we have their own firsthand experiences of how racist, how awful they were. So, um, you know, I just want to transition to last uh, uh, topic here, and, and we don't have much more time, but um, wanted to, I know that you wanted to bring up homelessness, and this is a really important issue for me, too. My wife is a social worker at the Nevada Partnership for Homeless Youth. Uh, she came on podcast a couple episodes ago to discuss what they do and what she sees with youth, youth homelessness in the community and what it's like for them to try to get services. And one of the things that she pointed out is we have an exceptionally high amount of homeless people in Las Vegas, especially homeless youth. Um, we have more homeless youth in Las Vegas than in San Francisco. Why do you think our homeless problem, why do you think we have such a big homeless problem in, in Las Vegas and Southern Nevada? Mainly because you only have three homeless shelters. So that's a problem. And we don't really have re- rehab places. We don't have places where they could actually have a place to get mail, to have a phone. Shelters are just for that. That's just that's just temporary. We need something that's a little more permanent where they can actually rehab. Mm-hmm. Main thing with the youth, I'm not too sure really why we have such a homeless youth population. It can mainly be maybe getting kicked out of the home or mm-hmm. or being uh, not being an orphan, get to a certain age, and then you're on the street from foster care. That can maybe make a difference. But I do know that the homeless population as a whole is big like that because it's just like. The city acts like they just just does not care. You know, you have seventy eight over seventy eight hundred casinos on the strip, but you have three homeless shelters, no rehab places for homeless to go longer than a day. So that's a problem. So yeah. until we can start building places where they can actually get a week stay, meals, phone calls, get mail delivered to get a job, that's when you're going to actually see progress progression. But when you just have a place where they can only go for six hours, shower in cold water, get bed bugs. Mm-hmm. get nasty food, that's not rehab. So yeah. people would rather sleep in the park. I was told this by three homeless guys. They prefer the park than the shelters. Most shelters you can't get in if you don't have an ID mm-hmm. or a birth certificate. If you're homeless, you think you're trying to keep up with a birth certificate? You're right, trying exactly, to survive. Yeah. And a lot of what my wife spends her time doing when she first meets new clients is rebuilding that identification. How do we get your social security card? How do we get your birth certificate? And So that you can actually start to take those steps and and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, the mental health situation here is another example where we're totally underserved. We don't have enough facilities. There aren't enough beds. There's not enough workers to actually care for the people. And so we turn a lot of mentally ill folks back out onto the streets. And that's, that's really a big problem. Um, 
what do you think? Do you think that there's anything our government should be doing to help this situation? Our you know our state legislature, or, uh, local governments here. Oh yeah, we we first need to really start identifying we have a homeless problem, and let's begin to come together to see what can we do. Let's build our first maybe two story, three story rehab place where people can go. Even if it's just twenty people, that's twenty less people off the street. That's a step closer to getting themselves together. Yeah. So. We need the government officials to maybe sign some laws, some bills where, where they're allowed to sleep in the park longer than 5 o'clock. A lot of states, it's illegal to even serve food to the homeless. Yeah. Vegas was that, but I know that, that changed a couple of years ago. Yeah, Mary but, Goodman tried to get that passed and got struck down. But you, but you have parks where they only can sleep in until 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So we need to start getting some of these bills where they, could, they have free reign. They can go wherever they want to go. There's certain places on the strip where they will get harassed because they're... they're bothering tourists they're, they're not bothering tourists they might ask for something you know a handout all you could do is say no yeah that's the worst you can do so we need to start stop treating them like second-class citizens and stop treating them like aliens and let's begin to stop using terms like bums and feeding the homeless like they're animals and let's start to say stuff like serve and people and and that 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 that's going to first awaken people like wow they are just like us but if we treat them like they're invisible nothing's going to get done so we need the state legislators to speak out to acknowledge the homeless problem first and to acknowledge they're just like us. They know less than us. Until we do that, nothing's going to change. Well, great. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I'm excited about the housing first model and uh, all of that as well. Well, Stretch, it's been really great to have you here. Um, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Any last things to plug or any other, you know, things you want to get out there? Um, thank you guys for having me, Vinny. Thank you. I just want to say just get involved, guys. Don't just watch the movement. Don't just tweet the movement. Don't just hashtag the movement. Don't just record the movement, but join the movement. All power to the people. And if people want to join the movement, where should they go? What, what should they look up? Or what, what should they look for? It's easy to join the movement. If you could just get you and three friends and get flyers and pass out flyers, Black Lives Matter, Stop Police Terrorism, that's helping. But the main thing to do is that you have organizations like Unity Vegas. You can go to Unity Vegas on Facebook, All Shades United on Facebook, Food Not Bombs, their organization that served the homeless. They're on Facebook. It's different ways to get involved. I know it's not as easy because we don't really share information, but just start with within your home. Start to organize your family to stop using terms like bum and stop, you know, the, the, different things like that to see homeless as people, to stop saying all lives matter and begin to say black lives matter. The change has to start within ourselves. Once you can start to do that, it's going to be easy to connect with people like you. I totally agree. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to uh, today's episode of the Win With Vin podcast. You can find out more information about me and the campaign and even make a donation at winwithvin.org. And don't forget that voting in the primary election is coming right up. Early voting is going to start on May 28th, and primary election day is June 14th. So we need everybody to get out there and vote. Thank you again so much, Stretch, for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. All power to the people. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please share it and don't forget to win with Vin. The Win with Vin podcast is paid for and authorized by the committee to elect Vinny Spottleson.